Well, it's uh, always nice for me to come to Moodysburn. Thanks for the invitation uh, to come back again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke 19. Today is Palm Sunday, I think, uh, if my church calendar is right. And I felt that we should uh, look at uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time, or at least uh, in this uh, final, as he enters the final week of his life on earth at least. So let's read from Luke 19 verse 28. Luke 1928. So uh, he has just spoken the parable and then we read, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, and found it just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, or he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, just a prayer, Lord. As we uh, turn our thoughts to this familiar passage, we ask, Lord, that you will be our teacher, and we pray that you'll minister to us. Um, We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen. 
It must have been quite something to have been uh, in that parade on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I was a little boy uh, living um, on the east coast of Scotland in a little village called Aberlady. We always looked forward to one Saturday in the year when the black taxis would uh, carry children from the city of Edinburgh. I don't know where they came from, but all we knew is that they traveled through our village and on to North Berwick. And uh, in each of these taxis, there would be a child. Uh, Many of them, it would appear, had a disability. Um, And it was a day out and, and each child had their own taxi and they would drive through our village and the horns were going and streamers were going and balloons hanging from the taxis and it was a great a great Saturday for us as children watching the, the black taxi parade and often they would slow down and throw sweets at us uh, out, out the window of the taxis and you could see the smile of the children on the inside and the delight of the children on the outside and it was a great day's fun since then of course I've been to many parades uh, I've even stood with my children watching Mickey Mouse and Cinderella in uh, the Disney parade in places like Paris and and then when we lived in Canada we drove down to California and were able to go to Disney there and uh, parades are a lot of fun in, in, in Canada when I lived there we used to have a float our church had a float in uh, the winter carnival so uh, Winters in Canada are fairly grim affairs, as you could imagine, and so they needed to spruce uh, it up a little bit, brighten it up a little bit. We had this huge carnival, and our church would have a float in it. We always looked forward to uh, being out amongst people and and, uh, just talking to people, sharing with people, and the carnival was, was good fun. None of those parades that I've ever been at would have compared to this uh, parade on Palm Sunday. The crowds were absolutely ecstatic with excitement. They were so excited and so in, in such a state of euphoria that they were snapping branches off the palm trees and, and uh, laying them down along with their coats to make a carpet for, for this, this rabbi, this, this miracle worker who came riding on a donkey so that the donkey would have like a carpet to walk on. You see, it was Passover time and people had come to Jerusalem from all arts and parts not only of the country but all arts and parts of the world and they had come to commemorate the night that God delivered their ancestors from Egypt they had come to remember how in the shedding of the blood of a lamb and the application of that blood to the doorposts of their houses in Egypt, the angel of death had passed over them and had humbled the mighty Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians so that they were able to go free into the desert to meet with God at Sinai and on to the promised land. So this is a feast that commemorates the Passover and nationalistic feelings were running high. This is a point in history, the first century, when they longed for freedom from the Romans and from Roman domination over them. And they had become fixated with Jesus. He had performed miracles. 
He was an amazing teacher and orator. He could hold a crowd in suspense as he told story after story and taught them the Old Testament scriptures. He was just an amazing orator and and an incredible miracle worker. I've often said, probably here a million times, not many people can stand outside the grave of a man who's been dead for four days and call him forth. And not many people can take a little boy's lunch and feed a multitude of four or five thousand people five thousand men besides women and children was this going to be the one that would deliver them from Roman domination was he the one that Moses spoke of is he the great deliverer that the prophets spoke of is this miracle worker that is now riding into Jerusalem coming to establish his authority and raise them to world prominence and world dominance yet despite their excitement and their show of exuberance they failed, they failed to see that he was a deliverer A deliverer not from Egypt, but from sin. And ultimately from the horrors of hell. That's why he had come riding into Jerusalem. Despite the ripping off of branches from trees, they they failed to see that the one who was at the center of this parade was none other than a king. But in his own words, his kingdom was not of this world. It was a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom where people would surrender to his rule and his control as they laid their hearts down at his feet. This is a kingdom where people would enjoy peace and wholeness. Isn't it fair to say that this Easter probably many people will be excited about the theme of Easter, the events of Easter? But the tragedy is that many of them will not really know the one who's at the center of it all in any kind of personal way will not really know the reality of what he did and why he did it and how it could become their possession that that's the sad thing about easter well i just want to lift three things out of this uh, little text of scripture i want you to think with me about the donkey i want you to think about the journey And I want you first, uh, finally to think about uh, the crowds or the concern of the Pharisees, if you you will. So those are the three things. So the donkey, the journey, and the crowds. Three things. First of all, the donkey then. John 12 verse 1 tells us that Jesus arrived in Bethany, or Bethpage and Bethany, two villages which were close to each other, about two miles from Jerusalem. Um, And it it appears that it was Friday before Passover week. Saturday was the Sabbath, uh, which was spent with uh, his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Uh, and, And then on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Jesus leaves Bethany and makes his way into Jerusalem. And that's where this whole thing unfolds. 
Now, two things about this donkey. I want you, first of all, to notice the intuition of Jesus. And then a little bit just about his instructions. But first of all, the intuition of Jesus in regard to this donkey. Jesus approached Bethpage, which is located somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. He sent two of his disciples ahead of the main group. So two of them are sent, designated and go forth as a, go in front of the rest as a little group designated and sent by Jesus and they were sent to fetch a donkey actually Matthew tells us there was a mother donkey and a young colt on which no one had ever ridden before the mother of the colt was probably also brought along with the the colt to to put it at ease that is uh, at least speculation and, and there's some discussion about that and Jesus told them exactly where they were to go to find these animals and when they found these animals tied they were to untie them and bring them to Jesus Now, uh, I guess that Jesus had walked uh, in and out of Jerusalem many times. He had probably made this particular journey many times to Bethany, where he had uh, spent weekends and periods of time with Mary and Martha and, of course, their brother Lazarus. So this was a journey that he was familiar with. And maybe, maybe he saw the donkeys tied up there. Maybe he knew that they would be there. Because he'd passed this way so many times before. Maybe it was because he is omniscient, the second member of the Trinity, veiled in human flesh. Maybe it's because he has access to the knowledge, to knowledge that relates to everything and everyone. And maybe it was because of his omniscience that he knew that those donkeys were in that exact location. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, Before he got to Bethpage, he knew that there would be two donkeys tied up in the village and that the disciples, two of them, could go and get these donkeys and bring them to him. He knew that they were there. And it reminds me, it may not remind you, but it reminds me that God knows everything. His knowledge is exhaustive. Everything that has ever happened and everything that will ever happen, happen. And and maybe uh, you're here this morning and you think to yourself, you know, yeah, I, I go to that church and people don't really know about the stuff that I struggle with. They don't know anything about the way that my family, my brothers have treated me or my sister has treated me. They don't know anything about what has gone on in my life this week or even in the past. And frankly, some of them don't even care. And that may be true, but I want you to know that that God knows. Because he knows everything. He knew Jesus knew where those donkeys were. Somehow. And it doesn't matter to me how he knew. He's the one that knows everything and he knows everything about you. And and the other thing that strikes me about that is you know, there's a challenge with that if Jesus knows everything. Jesus does know everything. He knows when I'm living a double life. And uh, recently I, I had occasion to, to interact with somebody um, who should have walked a very different path and was involved in a leadership position but was secretly having an affair on his, behind his wife's back and, and uh, not just once but over a prolonged period of time and he thought, you know, nobody knows, she doesn't know, God knows, God sees 
Jesus knows all about it. Because Jesus knows everything all of the time. And eventually if God doesn't catch up with us in this life, we will have to answer to him in the life to come. Well, Jesus knew where these donkeys were because that's who he is, the all-knowing one. Secondly, the instructions that are given to these disciples, Jesus knew that if anyone saw his two disciples untying these donkeys and and, uh, just walking away with them, they would ask them, so what what, what are you doing? What, What in the world do you think you're doing? Uh, It seems that in Bible times, sometimes individual families were too poor to own a donkey by themselves. That's unthinkable for us in the affluent West. But in Bible times, sometimes people were so poor that they couldn't afford to own a donkey all by themselves. And so it would be owned sometimes by a number of families. Sometimes it would be all owned by a small community and it would be put to work by different members of the community. So oftentimes donkeys weren't just the sole property of one individual but it was still unlikely that they would be able to walk in and untie these donkeys without someone noticing and without somebody saying hey where are you going I mean if nothing else people would have recognized well these two guys are strangers they're not part of the of of the syndicate that owns this little donkey so where are they going with this thing and uh, people would ask them all kinds of questions you can't just uh, show up and untie a donkey and walk up. like I mean how would, what, what would happen if somebody just showed up on your driveway and got into your car and drove off on it You'd, somebody somewhere you would hope one of your neighbors would say well where are you going with Billy's car or John's car or Mary's car and that's the kind of scenario that's unfolding here And Jesus told his disciples what to say to these folks when they were asked the question. It's a great, it's just a great answer. Just tell them, uh, it used to be in the authorized version, I think, the master hath need of it. And I grew up uh, with the authorized version and... and, uh, And then I changed the New King James and then I changed the NIV and now people are telling me that I should change the ESV and I'm not changing. So uh, I've changed enough. Anyway, uh, I grew up with the AV and I think that's what the master hath need of it. It's a lordship question. The Lord of all glory wants it. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills wants the the donkey. The one who owns absolutely everything has need of it. And and it's a great question. It's a great answer to any question that we might ask. Why should I become a Christian? Because the Lord of glory said you must be born again if you're to get into heaven. Why should I give my life to Christ? Because the master, the Lord of glory says, unless you repent and become like little children, you will perish Why should I not sleep with my boyfriend? Because the master says, no adultery. The Lord of glory says, no adultery. This is a lordship question. The one who owns everything says no or says yes. And whatever he says, we we should submit to it and surrender to it. And we have no right to question it. 
Why should I give myself in devotion and service and in outreach in the context of a local church? Because that is what the master expects. So two quick things then about the donkey. Jesus knew that it was there and he gave simple instructions to his disciples. If they ask you why you're taking it, just tell them the master needs it. And whatever the master says should go unquestioned. Secondly then, a little bit about the journey. The disciples had been uh, sent to Bethpage and they returned with a colt just as Jesus had asked them to. And a colt, of course, uh, was uh, a donkey that, uh, a young donkey that no one had ridden on. And the disciples immediately threw their coats on the back of this little colt uh, to make it a little bit more comfortable for Jesus to sit on and then uh, Jesus sat up on it and he continued on from there into Jerusalem uh, where the crowds were waiting to greet him. Now the truth is I think Jesus did not need a donkey uh, to ride into Jerusalem. It wasn't that Jesus was tired. I mean, Jesus walked from Galilee to Jerusalem and up into uh, Caesarea Philippi. And, I mean, Jesus walked everywhere. He was strong. He would have, like these pathetic pictures you see of Jesus, bear no resemblance whatsoever to what Jesus would have looked like. He was fit as, as could be, walking absolutely everywhere. I don't think that Jesus needed a donkey to carry him into Jerusalem. I think that there was a significant in his coming into Jerusalem on a donkey or on the back of a colt. So I think first of all this act is like a parable and it spoke of his humility. Spoke of his humility. He was riding on a donkey. Wasn't riding on a white stallion. If you ever watch some of these royal events that take place recently, uh, the royal wedding between... uh, Harry and and Meghan and the pomp and ceremony was just out of this world wasn't it with soldiers and and, uh, there was horsemen and chariots and and sometimes at some of these royal events you've got golden carriages drawn behind horses and, and the pomp and ceremony is just incredible but here the king of glory rides into Jerusalem not in a golden carriage not on a white stallion but on a donkey. And as Jesus comes to the crowning moment of his life, he comes on a colt, probably tied to its mother. He came on a load-bearing animal, and it was so appropriate that he did because he came to bear the sins of the world. He came not to be served, but to serve others. He had nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus sets an example for those of us who are consumed with bigger and better and constantly bigger and better. Those of us who are never content with what we have. Those of us who don't like driving a beaten up Mini and pull up at the lights beside a nice big shining BMW and think, I should have that. Why doesn't he get out of that and give me his BMW and he can have my Mini for a while? Jesus rode on a a colt in humility, setting us an example to follow. Why must we have the best of everything? Why can't we be content with the kind of things that Jesus was content with? I spoke of his humility. 
Jesus lived a very simple and humble life. And that, I find that a great challenge because I'm, I'm seldom satisfied with what I have. Seldom. Constantly grasping for more. The second thing is, he, it spoke of his mission of peace. In Bible times, rulers quite often rode on donkeys in times of peace. Uh, for instance, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, you'll find this. David gave instructions that when Solomon, his son, was to be crowned as his successor, he was to be led on a donkey or he was to ride on a donkey to to the place of his coronation. The very fact that a king was able to move around a country on a donkey spoke volumes of the peace that the king had secured for the nation. They were able to slowly meander around on a donkey. Because they had secured peace for the nation. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says that the coming king of Israel would come gently riding on a donkey, on, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And, and as the Jews looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, they believed that he would be a great peacemaker. And how wonderfully Jesus fulfilled this prophecy as he comes to be the Prince of Peace, to broke, to fix broken relationships. Isn't that why he's coming to Jerusalem on this donkey? To fix the broken relationship between God and men and women who are at war with God and who've turned their backs on God and are going in their own direction. This Prince of Peace is riding into Jerusalem slowly on a donkey because he's coming to make peace between God and people and humanity. And he is coming not only to make peace between God and humanity, but between people and people. I mean, Christians are peacemakers. They're peace lovers. They're not troublemakers. They're not fighters. They're people who love peace. Just like their master, who was the prince of peace. So it's appropriate that he should meander into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Because this is he is coming on a mission of peace. And he is coming to fix broken relationships and to give us the peace of God which passes all understanding in our hearts and in our minds. Isn't it it a great thing to know that you're at peace with God and that you're not God's enemy and that you are God's child and that he has accepted you into his family and, and that he loves you with an everlasting love? And it's all because of this Prince of Peace who rode into Jerusalem and died on a cross. It's, you know, the whole miracle of uh, adoption is something else, isn't it? I was speaking at a conference recently in, somewhere in the belly of England, and I can't remember where it was, but I stayed overnight with a family uh, who were part of the host team, and I, I was speaking to them. And they had several children, and, and then they had uh, fostered a girl. And uh, this girl had been through very traumatic events in her life and, and uh, was giving them all kinds of grief, to be honest. Anyway, they were, they were contemplating uh, adopting her. Not just fostering her, but adopting her. And uh, they said, uh, the, the social worker came around to talk to them about adoption. And uh, they were thinking, so if we adopt this girl, what will it be like in relation to our other children? 
And, and what about things like our will? And where will she stand in, in terms of things like inheritance and all of that? Thinking through all of those things. And the social worker looked at them and said, If you adopt this girl, she will be your daughter. And she will have the same rights as all of your other children. She will be effectively equal in every way to your other children. And they went home and thought about it and prayed about it. And they were reminded in a message that that was exactly what God had done for them. Adopted them into his family. And why shouldn't they adopt this girl into their family? And it's a great thing to be at peace with God. I didn't really intend to tell you that story, but there it is. The third thing it speaks of, his journey in, on, on a donkey, is it speaks of, its, of his power, doesn't it? I mean, this animal that Jesus sat on was a colt. It was the male foal of a donkey. No one had ever ridden on the back of it before. And Mark tells us in his account that the animal was unbroken. No one had ever ridden on it before. Uh, That's so characteristic of Jesus. You know, no baby had ever been in the womb that he was in. No body would ever lie in the, had ever lain had ever been laid in the tomb that he would eventually rest in, and here he is. No one had ever ridden on the donkey that carried him into Jerusalem. Now I, I'm not a horsey person per se. I did grow up on a little farm, and we had a horse called Paddy, and our postman told us that it was the oldest horse that he had ever seen. So. Uh, it wasn't the wildest animal that you'd ever met, uh, to be honest. But I know enough to know that you don't sit on the back of a wild animal. Uh, I do know that much. My little sister and I, two years younger than, than I am, we used to feed calves in the, in the evening. We'd go out with buckets of milk and so on. And sometimes when they got older, we'd go out with buckets of uh, nuts or meal and we'd feed them in the, at, at the top of the field. And as they were eating their nuts, please don't tell anybody that belongs to the animal rights movement this, but when they were eating the nuts, we would quietly slip around and jump on their backs. And then when they finished their nuts, they just went like rockets down the field. And we got a ride that just uh, blew the cobwebs off any roller coaster. Um, I know enough to know you don't sit on the back of a wild animal. But Jesus instantly sat on the back of this wild colt and rode it into Jerusalem. And it shows something of his power to subdue. Even the wildest of creatures, somehow, supernaturally, he subdues this creature and rides it into Jerusalem. And that too is so appropriate of Jesus, because he could still the storms, couldn't he? He could reign over the ravages of disease. My, even death had to subdue itself to him and surrender to him. Not only at Lazarus' grave, but eventually on the third day when he would come again like a victor. This is Jesus. He is the one who conquers and goes forth to conquer. That should encourage you. It encourages me if the problem of sin rages in your life out of control. You ever feel like that? The one who subdued the storms. The one who mastered a cult can subdue those sins and bring them under control. And I don't care how, how deep sin goes. 
His grace can go deeper still. I don't care to what extent they have chained and imprisoned you. His amazing grace can surely set people free. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't preach it. And I do, over the course of my life, have seen God setting people free. And sometimes with the use of all kinds of assistance, medically and sometimes just miraculously. And God's got his own ways and he does things as he pleases. But, but ultimately, he is the ruler who can subdue all things. And he subdues the cult. Lastly, then, the crowds. And uh, with this, I'll be finished. Um, up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has been telling people to keep quiet about his power and about his identity. When he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, for instance, he told his disciples not to speak of what they had seen. When he raised Jairus' daughter, he told her parents, don't tell anyone about what has happened. But there's no secrets here as he rides into Jerusalem. And the reason for that is that his hour has come now. And there's no holding back. And there's no running off to a corner. He rides into Jerusalem and faces the crowds. A couple of things and and then I'll be finished. The confession of the multitude. It's hard to estimate how many people were there that day. John MacArthur in his commentary makes mention of a census that was taken 10 years afterwards. 10 years after the time of Jesus' death. And in that census, census... 260,000 Passover lambs were slaughtered at Passover. That's a lot. Like, that is a lot. Uh, And sometimes a lamb could be slaughtered for a whole family. Josephus, speaking about a period a little bit later on, says that there was 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem. For the so huge crowds, like not just a thousand, but but huge crowds of people were lining the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus rode in. Matthew 21 verse 9 says that the people were in front of him and behind him. John 12:13 says that tells us that the crowds left Jerusalem and went out to welcome him. So as you can just see the thronging crowds that gather around him, they've such high hopes for Jesus and you can imagine the atmosphere, you can imagine the nationalism, the sense of maybe this is the time, maybe he is the one that will set us free. And as he comes in, in, into Jerusalem, they're pulling the branches off the trees and they're crying, Hosanna, he, they, they're saying, save now, son of David. Save us now, da- son of David, from these horrible Romans. Set us free now, son of David. That's what they're crying. And it looks great, doesn't it? I mean, it just looks fantastic. Huge crowds welcoming Jesus, rallying behind him. Surely now's the moment when they'll, when they'll drive the Romans out of Jerusalem. But all that glitters is not gold. Because by the end of the week these people will be saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. It didn't last. It didn't last. What about you as it lasted? Have you, have you ever... Have you even got as far as the crowds on Palm Sunday? Have you surrendered to Jesus, acknowledged Jesus? But has it lasted? Is it real? That, that's the really important thing. That I, I, I prayed with a couple. I was just thinking about them last night. I prayed with a couple. 
And I just heard recently that I prayed with a couple one night after at a meeting I spoke at, and they wanted to become Christians, and they were ad- absolutely adamant. Both wanted to become Christians, and uh, it was a little strange to me because I didn't know them, and I didn't have any great clear sense that there was any great conviction of sin. But what I discovered just recently is that they have gone nowhere spiritually, absolutely nowhere. And you wonder, was it real? Was it real? Well, the crowds are singing, Save now, son of David. And it looks so exciting from the outside. You think, these people love Jesus. They will support him. Surely they will support him. No, no. In less than five days, they'll be saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Well, here's the last thing. It's the concern of the leaders. Well, the second last thing, and I'll be very quick with the last one. The concern of the leaders... The, crowd, the, the leaders of Israel are, are, are alarmed. They're alarmed that people are flocking to Jesus, worshipping Jesus. This isn't right, they're saying. And, and they say to Jesus, tell your disciples to knock it off. This is getting out of control. This is too much. You see what Jesus says? If these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. See... Worship is not the fluff that we need to get through until we get to the sermon. Worship's really important. God is great and worthy of all the praise that we can give to Him. And, and uh, you know, we, one day, if you're a Christian, you will join with billions around the throne and do, you will sing the praises of God and of the Lamb for all eternity. Jesus says, listen to me. If these were silent, the stones would start to sing. And lastly, is the compassion of Jesus as he comes down over, uh, comes down uh, over the Mount of Olives and, and uh, down into the Kidron Valley, and he begins to look at Jerusalem. We're told that he wept. He wept at the blindness of the people. They couldn't see who he was, what he had come to do. He couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. He wept about their hardness of heart. They just were so resistant to him. And he wept about the coming judgment. The Romans were going to come and the city would be razed to the ground and the Jews slaughtered. I was reading recently that uh, when the Romans came, Josephus, the the Jewish historian, says that rivers of blood flowed through the gates of the city. Horrific, horrendous. Jesus can see the judgment of God falling on this city and he weeps bitterly because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. And he's filled with compassion at the lostness of these people. And so this Easter as we think about the people out there and as we think about the people who seem so blind to Jesus we need to ask ourselves the question do we know anything about the concern of Jesus? Let me finish with this story. The train tracks of East Germany. In in his book, Hitler's Cross, Edwin Lutzer tells the story of a little church that was built in East Germany right beside the railway tracks. Every Sunday as they sat in their seats, they could hear the conductor's whistle blow and the train leaving the station. Full of Jews that were on their way to extermination camps. And they could hear the screams of the Jews and it tormented them as the train passed their little church. But they figured out how to cope with it. They organized their services so that they would be singing. When 
when the train passed and they wouldn't hear the Jews cry on their way to extermination camps. He, he can, and, and I wonder if we're a bit like that. We, we, we have adapted, we've adjusted, we've figured it out. We can live with the fact that all around us there are people who are perishing and going to a lost eternity. Well, Jesus wept, just broke his heart devastated. When was the last time you wept about the fact that someone you care for and love is not going to heaven? Well, that's what Jesus did as he rode into Jerusalem. So the three things were really simple. There was the donkey. He knew where it was and he gave instructions. The master needs it. And he knows everything about us and his lordship over our lives is absolute. There was his donkey. There was the journey. It spoke of his humility. Just a donkey, not a stallion, just a donkey. And it, and it spoke of his peace. He had come to make peace. He was the great peacemaker. And it spoke of his power because he was able to subdue this wild animal and sit on his back right into Jerusalem. And then there was the crowds. The leader said, tell your disciples to knock it off. This is out of control. Jesus says, you know what, if they were silent, even the stones would cry out. We used to sing a song uh, with words like that. I can't remember it. Uh, Anyway, it's gone. Thank you so much for your kind attention today. And I'm sorry if I rambled on too long.